All right. Hello and welcome to Just Animals Podcast. I'm Elle and with me as always is my dad, aka Guy. Hi there, Pod World. I don't know how we scored Dr. Lowe today, but man, I'm really happy Thanks to have Thanks for him. preemptively introducing him and not oh. letting him get his grand entrance. Thank <laughs> well, you for ruining that. No, it's Quiet. not ruined. No. It's a- you it's, ruined it. I'm, Please talk into the mic. Sam. <laughs> and back and Sam the zookeeper. It's gonna be a great show today, guys. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi. And then the ever so famous and thank you again for gracing us with your presence and your Absolutely. time. Dr. Chris Lowe from Cal State Long Beach Shark Lab, which is actually in our backyard. So really quick, can we come visit the Shark Lab once Absolutely. we're all vaccinated? Absolutely. Perfect. The Shark Lab we is would open love to. to. Oh. Okay, is- well that Dr. Yeah, Lowe. so Sam, you are going to have to – yeah, so basically we're all three going to come visit you, Dr. Lowe, and, get, and hang I out just, in the shark lab. I got to get on a plane. I got to get my vaccinations, and then I'm going to get on a plane and come. Absolutely. I was going to save this for the end, but being a little bit immature, I'm going to ask you right now. Are you going to need a bigger boat? I always need a bigger boat. <laughs> the problem with bigger boats is that bigger boats require bigger budgets. Amen, brother. I had a 40-foot sailboat, and uh, my kids didn't want to help me clean the hull. So I, I totally get you're it. Right. I didn't, I, you're right. I don't want to wax it. I don't want to clean it. It was, yeah. it was the worst. All right. But anyways, good, so good. Dr. Chris Lowe is, again, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you go ahead and tell our for, those of our, for those listeners that don't know who you are and what you do, why don't you go ahead and give us a little background on yourself and the Shark Lab? Sure. Well, I have been studying sharks for about 30 years now. Um, wow. I, I grew up in Martha's Vineyard, so I, I oh East Coast, I'm yeah. East Coaster. Um, you know, my my mom's family were whalers and commercial fishermen, so it was always assumed that I would do something around the ocean because that's how it's I in grew your up. blood. It's in it's your in blood. My blood. Um, the difference was yeah. I became at an early age became interested in science and and interested in studying the animals yes. that I caught. And that was different yes, from my family. That's a big thumbs up for us. So, um, you know, I was the oh. first in my family to go to college. And I said, I think I want to be a marine biologist. And my, my family was like, okay, but cool. what is that? And do you get paid for that? Yeah, what is that? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, after I started going to school and I, I knew nothing about college, I had nobody in my family to look to, you know, to, for advice about that. And I kind of fumbled my way through it, but I absolutely loved it. So, um, you know, I can remember having conversations with my grandfather who commercially fished in New England for 65 years. And, and you know, wow. at the time, wow. you know, fishing was in a bad place in New England. Um, biologists had a bad reputation because they were closing fisheries. You know, I had some, you know, in my family that probably were thinking he's crossed over to the dark side. Um, but I can remember having a conversation. Yeah, you're with a traitor. <laughs> exactly. And my grandfather saying, you know, you did it right. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you get paid to go fishing, whether you catch anything or not. And I thought, you know what? Ah. That's pretty oh. much it. That's, that's pretty much my job. Um, so, so that was kind of my start. And, and sharks were always my passion since I was about eight. And, and to be able to, you know, be at the place where Jaws was being filmed and being interested in sharks at that time was right. kind of oh, that's right. surreal, you know? So when I watched Jaws, it's literally like watching old family movies because they were all locals in that movie, including some of my family. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's kind I of I was about to say, neat. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. 
Very cool. So then how do you, I mean, that's a big trick. How do you, and I was reading your bio, this is making me sound like a stalker, but I didn't want to come on unprepared. Were you briefly in Hawaii too, Were you at U of H? So I, so that's I a long track from Martha's Vineyard yeah, <laughs> to so Oahu. I, I get my bachelor's degree in Rhode Island and in marine biology, which was great. But you know what? I really was tired of the cold. So uh, uh, I, I worked yeah. in Belize for a couple of years and helped build field stations. And then, um, and then I, I, I met this guy, Don Nelson, who was the, the founder of the shark lab at Cal State Long Beach. And I met him on Cape Cod. So uh, it was, it was kind of fortuitous meeting, but, um, you know, I had read his papers about shark behavior and that was my, my interest. So I ended up coming to Cal State Long Beach to get my master's degree working with Dr. Nelson. And then after graduating, I went to the University of Hawaii for my PhD. And, and Hawaii was like, if, if you want to talk about shark heaven, that was it. So to, mm-hmm. to be just able to in go general. to shark heaven <laughs> uh, was, was awesome. And right. it, was hard, it was hard to leave. I'm um, sure. But, you know, when you spend 14 years in college, your family starts going, um, is this your job? Are you a professional student? Yeah, are you Right. <laughs> so, so to get a professor gig right out of my PhD was a big deal, and I was very fortunate and lucky to 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 get Dr. Nelson's position, and and to keep the legacy of the Shark Lab going. Nice. So, it was a big honor for me to to be able to do that and and train the next generation of, of shark scientists there. That's so great. That's so awesome. awesome. I mean, those are the stories we love to hear. Like, I mean, obviously we're all animal lovers since we're on this animal podcast. I mean, Sam went to zoo school. So it's so like for us, it's awesome to hear about other people that nerd out and geek out about animals the way we do and, you know, like to do the nitty gritty research. Because like Sam has said in the zoo, there's there's the glamorous parts and then there's majority of it is not so glamorous (laughs) and uh, can be tedious at times. Sorry to steal your thunder, Sam, but it's just- Oh no, I don't have any thunder about that. (laughs) (laughs) but it was just it was i mean sam opened our eyes to a lot of things too it's like what we see you know going to the zoo versus what goes on behind the scenes of the zoo it's like oh my god you know between feeding and cleaning and it's constantly cleaning and feeding and cleaning up and then reporting and taking i mean they have to document if every if the animal went to the bathroom that day like so so let's let's start there dr dr low uh this is not where i wanted to start but i'm gonna start so (laughs) there's obviously as a marine biologist there might be a conflict with you with respect to keeping an animal uh, at an aquarium versus keeping animal in the wild. Uh, however, there's a, a, a hopefully an appreciation by seeing these animals because not all of us have the ability to go out to the Farallon Islands. You know where the Farallon Islands are, I think, mm-hmm. and and Absolutely. do some uh, shark watching. So let's start there. What's what's your opinion of this uh, in terms of? Uh, the ethical nature of of keeping uh, these animals in in, a, in an aquarium. So that's a that's a great question, and it, and it's one that I spend a lot of time asking my students about, right? Because my job is to train that next generation right. of biologists that have to wrestle with this all the time. So when we do research on animals, our main concern is that we cause minimal pain and suffering to those animals. But our goal is to learn enough about them to understand what that is and how do we measure that and how do we quantify that? So, so, but that's always a challenge, right? So 
Sometimes the best way to study an animal is by keeping it in captivity because you can control right. things. You can control the environment. You yes. can control what you do to the animal to really measure those things. Because in many ways, we can't talk to them. We can't ask them how they feel. Um, and we're using techniques that doctors use to evaluate whether they're stressed. We can take a little blood and, and we can look in their blood and, and evaluate, are they stressed out? And, and how does that change with how we keep them or how we test them? So by getting that insight, that helps us in the future, maybe develop either better ways to keep them mm -hmm. or, or whether this species should be kept at all in captivity. So, you know, that, right. these are things that we always are trying to evaluate as scientists. And, and of course, as biologists, the last thing we want to do is cause any harm to an animal. We love the animals. That's why we want yeah. to study them. So, so right. it's, always, right. it's always a consideration. Now, historically, I believe that things have changed, right? So what's really interesting is my wife is a marine mammologist, so she studies seals. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have a kind of a predator-prey relationship. But, you know, the, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> the, but what's really interesting, and we have discussions about this all the time, is that there is a time period where... The only time anybody in this country would ever get to see one of these animals was by keeping that animal in captivity because their populations had been driven so low that, that you wouldn't be able to go out on a boat and see one. And, and, and that's only 50 years ago. So when you think about how far we've come with some species, you know, now you can get on a boat pretty much on any coast and go out and see a seal or a whale. That to me, is amazing. It's a conservation success story that we should be screaming about. Yeah. But that's not the case for all species, right? So, so obviously there are some species that maybe we really don't need to keep anymore. And then the other part that we're always concerned with is, you know, while it's cool to show these animals uh, in captivity and show them how they live, and, and obviously if your goal is to re recover those populations, sometimes that's the only way to do it. Um, or the way to start. But when we start training animals to do tricks, then you can create a problem. And I'll give you an example. So with seal populations recovering, we have a situation now where the public can be on a beach and a wild seal, sea lion, will haul out and plunk itself mm. down on a public beach. Now, a normal, healthy yeah. animal will not do that, right? What you'll see people do is go over and plunk their toddler next to this sick bull sea lion and take pictures of oh, them boy. doing that. Now, oh, boy. at what point did we forget oh. that that thing has canines bigger than a wolf, right? That's a wild animal. So it's really interesting mm. when I talk to people, whether it be sharks or seals or whatever, when you talk to people about their perceptions of these animals, Quite often, their perceptions are based on what they've learned in zoos or circuses or things like that. And we have to re-educate the public that as these populations come back, your chances of encountering them in the wild is going up. This is a wild animal. This is a captive animal. And we have to get them knowledgeable mm -hmm. about predators in the wild and their population recoveries and how to interact around them. So... I think this is where yeah. zoos and aquaria are doing a much better job at getting that message out to the public. 
which is really important so that people don't get hurt. Cool. Well, even with captive animals, I mean, Sam, before I cut you off again, but um, even with captive animals, I mean, Sam, like there's some animals, they don't even go into their enclosure with them at the zoo. And just because they, they're too dangerous or whatever the rules and regulations are of that state. But um, I didn't know that's such a great point that, you know, people will go, I mean, you see all the time coming out of Florida, people surrounding a freaking, you know, 12 foot alligator taking selfies with it. It's like, that is an alligator. And that thing moves very quickly. And it's great. You brought that up because we're constantly preaching that on our show, uh, not even on the soapbox. Yeah. It's like, you can enjoy a wild, uh, seeing an animal in the wild with your eyes. And you can leave a respectful distance. <laughs> and that's what we're always like. It's great. We, we we love seeing like, go out and see animals. Just respectful distance. Sam, Touch with your eyes. <laughs> good. Let Sam get her question in. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I don't have, have a question. I don't even know. Right. I'm just, I love listening to Dr. Lowe. Everything's just, I, I just, we're everything you just said was so on point. I just loved it. I love it. I love it. No, my, my turn. Right. No, let me hit the next turn. one. Dr. Lowe, no, um, no. are you, no. are you no. a, uh, a white Great white shark specialist, or are you a gen- 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 general shark specialist, or uh, do you have a specialty in the shark field? Well, it, it's funny you bring that up. So um, I, I have worked on probably 40 different species of sharks and rays in my career, which has been awesome. And in fact, early in my career, I swore I would never work on white sharks because they were way overrated. And, you know, there's. I agree. It was just out of control. You know, they were the discovery darlings and, and they just got so much press and credit that people never got to learn about the cool, all the cool other sharks. And it it, it wasn't until I saw a a baby white shark that my attitude changed. (laughs) The babies are so freaking cute. I'm telling you, they're just adorable. They're these like scaled down miniature versions that are just, and they're naive and they don't know they're a white shark yet. It, it's so cool. It's oh, cool. like meeting a movie star before they were a movie star, right? And it turns out they're Got such it. it's cool like a pygmy white shark people with cool backgrounds. So I, my attitude has changed. I do work on white sharks now and, and I've learned to appreciate them. Okay, so, a, so cool. as a shark no. being, oh, just God, take, my turn. Take a no. take a pill. As a shark <sighs> being an apex predator, uh, can you tell us what the impact of mercury is on their bodies? So, so that's actually a really good question, and that's something that we've thank been you. Trying to understand. See that? It, I'm getting lots of good and, questions. Okay, you're you are getting lots good questions. Of good questions. So yes. we know the effects that that high concentrations of mercury have on mammals, right? That's been well studied, particularly on people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we know that mercury can be basically transferred through the food that we eat. That's how we get most of that mercury. It comes in as inorganic mercury into the environment. Bacteria convert it to an organic form that can then be taken in through the diet and passed up the food chain. The higher you are in the food chain, the more mercury or other contaminants you can acquire. So sharks, just like people being very high in the food chain, can acquire a lot of these contaminants. While it's well studied in mammals, we know that it can cause reproductive effects. It can cause immune effects. It can even cause a variety of neurological effects. We really have no clue how it affects sharks. We know that they can acquire high levels. Interesting. 
but we don't know what the physiological effects are and how they manifest. So it's, it's kind of a holy grail for a lot of shark scientists that are studying contaminants. And all I can tell you is we don't know whether, because most of them are cold-bodied, that their metabolisms are so low that, that it doesn't affect them the same way it affects mammals. Or physiologically, mm -hmm. sharks have very unique immune systems compared to all other vertebrates. And despite its primitive nature, they might have tricks to dealing with these contaminants that we just don't understand yet. But what I can tell you is we have caught baby white sharks with the highest mercury levels, mercury levels twice higher than would cause physiological effects in mammals. And we have seen no indication of any sort of physiological impact to those animals. That's so amazing. We, we, we don't, don't know, know why that they, they, they're not being impacted. Yeah. So well, well, let, me, let me go over to impact number two. Sure. Yeah. Quite you. Uh, microplastics, because this is a big, big concern, and I'm not sure how it's impacting the sharks, but I want you to tell us how. The, I mean, in the Pacific Ocean, there's a, just a, like a giant continent of plastic, uh, and hopefully we get this cleaned up one day. But uh, it's it, it, the plastic breaks down and it gets into the whole food chain. So what's what's the impact of microplastics on sharks? Well, we don't know. We okay. just don't know. There are researchers that are attempting to study that. We know the effects of, of macroplastics. So we know sharks get entangled in this stuff all the time. We know they ingest it. We know mm -hmm. that it can choke them. We know that it can block their digestive tracts and animals can die from that. Uh, what we don't know is how often that happens because unfortunately dead and sick sharks sink. So um, we yeah. just don't know how many animals are dying from we do know the ones that we've caught and, or have subsequently died from you know, being caught by fishers. When we do necropsies, we do find lots of plastic in their stomachs. Microplastics, oh, God. we have no clue. So there's a lot of work being done right now. And again, microplastics have to be looked at at, at a multiple of levels, right? One is, first of all, how can that plastic, can the plastic actually get inside the body? Other than getting into the digestive tract is one thing, but it's really the, the molecules that from the breakdown of those plastics that research is really focusing on, mm -hmm. like phthalates, for example, which are our metabolite, a breakdown yeah. of that plastic material that is able to transfer across cells. That's one that a lot of researchers are looking at, but we have no idea what the effects are yet. Are you uh, familiar with or know folks that are participating in trying to clean up the ocean with the plastics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we even provided some of the, the folks that had developed a big giant boom to go out and collect it in the garbage patch. We yeah. gave them acoustic receivers to hang on that to see if any tag, oceanic tag sharks actually hang around that. So you get uh -huh. this massive garbage patch out there, right? And it's, think of it like floating yeah. kelp in the middle of the ocean. So it's creating a, a upside down oasis, if you will. So we call those fish aggregating devices. So this debris that floats around creates an ecosystem around it. So small fish and plankton hang around it because it provides some shade and some cover and protection from predators. So if you have food, you're going to attract predators. And then you're going to attract bigger predators. 
So believe it or not, a lot of mm-hmm. that trash is creating habitat out there that might actually be drawing wow. more animals to it than would be if it was just randomly floating around. So this is another question that biologists don't understand. Fishermen have been studying the effects of fads, fish aggregating devices, and use them all the time. In fact, they're creating part of that pollution with that. Um, but we don't know how, is that increasing the frequency at which sharks are, are getting this garbage in their guts? Or do they not hang out there because of the chemical composition, the odor that's created? We just don't know. Interesting. Wow. Um, so how are the shark populations doing? Are they thriving? Are they stable? Are they diminishing? I mean, and, and I guess it depends on the type of shark, but uh, overall, would you say, what, what, st- what, what state are we in? Are we in a stable state right now of sharks? Um, it depends where you are in the world. So I, I think if we look at this from a historic standpoint, let's say over the last 50 years, um, you know, 50 years ago, the U.S. had a serious shark problem. We, we were definitely overfishing many of our shark populations. Uh, we had fished down all the valuable fish like cod and, and halibut and all those species that yeah. and tuna that we, we, we were preferred. And then we started fishing our way down the food chain. And, and sharks became very popular about 50 years ago because they were considered an underutilized species. And what biologists quickly learned was you can't fish shark populations like you do other species. They are slow growing. They take a long time to reach maturity and they can live to be ripe old ages. And therefore, it doesn't take a lot of pressure before you drop their populations low very quickly. 25 years ago, the U.S. really cracked down on that kind of fishing at both state and federal levels. And since then... Believe it or not, we've seen some remarkable population recoveries of shark and ray populations in U.S. waters. But all we did was, in many ways, export our problem. So once you create a market demand, if you're not meeting that because you tightly regulate fisheries in our own country, that doesn't stop the demand. So where does it come from? It comes from imports. We import it from other places that don't follow the same environmental regulations that we do and are literally hammering shark populations in other places. So, Uh. and, and you can't, you know, when you go find the people who are catching these sharks, these aren't big corporations that are just trying to make gazillions of dollars. These are small, poor families that have a small boat that are going out catching, you know, maybe 50 or 20 sharks at a pop and barely making enough money to survive. Uh. So it's a growing problem because there's a demand there. And in many cases, these fisheries are not regulated. So we know, we now, there's good science now that shows, you know, what some of these populations can, how you can fish them, at what levels you can fish them. We obviously have to keep an eye on pollution and climate change to be able to regulate those fisheries properly over time. But in some places, some species like sawfish are in big trouble. And if we don't do something globally, 
they will go extinct. Is there any uh, international treaties that countries are willing to comply with or they, they, the subsistence farming is overwhelms the country? You know, I, I think we're making progress, right? It takes time. And, and, you know, the key is, yes, you have to have regulation and you have to have policies at the governmental level. But in reality, if you want to change these systems, you have to do grassroots. You've got to get out to the fishers themselves and know how they live and know how they fish. And I think this is the future of, of fishery science, for example. Scientists have to get out to those communities and have to interact and go fishing with these people. I come from a fishing family. I, I know how detrimental it was for those fishery crashes in New England and how it just decimated the industry. Um, and, it, and it's easy to look at the government and say, oh, the government's putting people out of business and that's just not fair or right. But, but walk a day in their shoes and then let's find solutions. So there are solutions and it's helping fishers fish more effectively, um, teaching them how to influence markets. And then from the other side, it's educating consumers. If you really want to change markets, if people don't buy it, fishers won't catch it. So th this is not a one size fits all or silver bullet solution. It's going to take multiple solutions. And people have to go to these places and meet these fishers and see how they live and see how they fish. And if you want to find solutions, that's the best way to start. Very cool. Is there anything okay. in the shark world like there is in trout and salmon where you have people stocking uh, places? Is, do they do that with sharks as well, Dr. Lowe? Not yet. And, and the reason for that is um, because of the reasons I mentioned before. These things quite often species are, are wide ranging. Uh, they take a long time to reach maturity. Uh, they don't produce very many young. So if you were a fish farmer, so to speak, you would probably look at sharks or lazarus, the sharks and rays and go, ooh, that, that would be like if it took me, if I was raising trees and it took 40 years to raise a tree to the point where I could cut it down and turn it into lumber. You would need huge yeah. stretches of land to do that. Your return Sharks on and rays is fit too into long. the old trees category and from yeah. an army okay. standpoint. It's not viable. Gotcha. All right, Bunny. Okay. We'll let you Speaking get a question. Of, yeah, thank you. It's been the guy show. Um <laughs> But Dr. Lowe thinks I'm asking good questions. Like Okay, that's great. I, I have to. questions too. Yeah, you're not the one with questions. Anyways. Well, we're just going to have Dr. Lowe come on again. That's yes. what we're just going to have to do, if, he'll, if you'll be so kind again. Um, so do you also study skates and rays? And I do know this is taking me back to my biology 1202 when I was in school. Um, they're all called chondrichthys, right? Because they're cartilaginous fish. Yes. Thank you. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> see? Yeah. So in your face, guy. Um, so can you explain the difference between, I guess, skates, sharks, and rays? And then um, which ones do you study? Sure. So, so an A for L. So, um, ah! A for L. You did so, learn something yes, in school. The chondrichthians are the cartilaginous fishes, and they are the most primitive of the vertebrates. Cool. Uh, the thing that ties them all together is their cartilaginous skeletons. That is, okay. that is the key character, right? So, and that also includes what we call the ghost sharks, which are the chimeras. 
So, so they're, they're another one of that group. So the sharks, skates, and rays are all closely related genetically. Okay. Um, okay. And they come from similar, similar lineages. Ah, but okay. um, morphologically, they're very different, right? So while they all have right. cartilaginous skeletons, some are dorsal ventrally flattened, like a steamroller ran over. And those are the skates and the stingrays. And then, of course, we have the sharks. And then we have weird kind of tweeners, you know, like right. shovel-nosed guitar fish and, and yeah. sawfish and the saw sharks that are kind of feel like they're somewhere in between those morphological groups. They're right. all tied to that cartilaginous skeleton. So, right. you know, the the bottom line is they they occupy different habitats morphologically. Okay. You know, their right. their evolution is thought to be tied to many of the environments that they've evolved through. Okay. Um, but what's most impressive about all these groups, and even though some of them are more recently derived, they come from the most primitive lineage of vertebrates that have been around for over. 400 million years older than trees wow wow and they're still kicking that is so right cool. they're still kicking yeah that's the cool part that is so cool. that is cool even after everything we've done i know right it's like <laughs> they're kind of like cockroaches they won't yeah. die which is kind of which awesome. is good and then i was watching a, another interview you did and um i think it was about the, sh- it was the shark life and you're talking about how you want to change the perception of the way people view sharks. And we had talked about this when we did our wolf episode is like, you know, the wolf for centuries has been made out to be the big, you know, the big bad wolf, this blood sucking, it's going to come into your house and kill you. And it's like, that's not, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It's like your likelihood of seeing a wolf in the wild is slim to none. And um, they're pretty, you know, scared of humans. And like any animal, if you provoke it or it feels threatened, it's going to respond in an animal way. And um, you know, with, and I do, Maybe when, I don't know if this happened with you, but I've also heard that a lot of biologists were kind of pissed when Jaws came out because it just fed into the negative shark stigma. And it's like, oh, now we're having to undo all these years worth of like Jaws damage. And um, has that come up for you? All the time. So, so you want to play a little game? Yes. Okay. This is what I do in my class. And, and, and this is kind of a bias group. So I, I realize that my that your answers are likely going to be biased by your 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 experiences. But in a class, a general class of students from across all disciplines, it's amazing the answers that I get. Okay, so we're gonna I'm play sure. this. Game. What's the first things you think of when I say the word fish? Tuna. Piranha. Piranha. <laughs> tuna. Yeah. But, but related to what? So so tuna is a fish, yes. But salmon. What do the fish mean to you? The word fish, what does it mean to you? Something to eat. Something to no, eat. No, I think I think of water. Like it yeah, water, water animal. ocean water. or rivers. Yeah, water yeah. Okay, water animal. Lake, lakes, yeah. and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So typically answers that I get are, you know, food, sushi. Um <laughs> I, I get my my hypoallergenic pet, right? Oh yeah. I get yeah, Nemo, okay. right? I get all oh. of those. Now, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word shark? Jaws. Majestic creature. I think a skin. <laughs> yeah, shark yeah skin. the skin, right, because it's, it's so, so sharp. Awesome. Yeah, it's just a weird thing. Shark skin Which, is so have weird. You, have you cut yourself before? Because I know some of their skin, it's like basically just reverse teeth on their bodies. They are teeth. Oh, that They're all teeth. So- yeah, so their scales are teeth. But my point is 
Guy said Jaws, Jaws, Jaws right? right? So nine times out of 10 with, with a group, a general demographic group, you'll get you know teeth, you'll get Jaws, you'll get danger, you'll get, you'll get all these attitudes, right? That, Shark that week. are their perceptions based on right. their experiences, right? So the reality of it is a shark is just another fish, right? It's an aquatic gill breathing fish. So usually when I say the word fish, I don't get piranha. I don't get barracuda. I don't get danger. <laughs> I get all these happy, pleasant things that people think about when they think of a fish. When you say shark immediately, it doesn't matter what shark, right? They immediately go to, you know, the jaws and the teeth and the blood and the biting and da, da, da. So those are those preconceptions. And in reality, shark is just another fish. So, so those are the things that we're trying to change. Those are the attitudes that we're trying to change. And we are fighting the Jaws mentality. Um, you know, Peter Benchley felt really bad about yeah, that, I heard that, too. <laughs> that attitude that was created from that. And, and it's hard to change. Okay, so I'm going to give you another example. Um, yes. 150 years ago, if I asked you to walk down the streets of San Pedro and ask people what they thought about whales, what do you think they would say? Money. Life. Light. Livelihood, money. Yeah. Blubber. Yeah. Oil, Oil lamps. I, I mean, soap. I don't know. But I'd say mon that's a money money maker. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, how about menace? Dangerous animal. Killer. Human killer. A whale? Moby Dick. Oh, yeah. Did you ever read Moby Dick? Yeah. Unfortunately, I did not have to read that, but that oh, makes, that you say that makes sense. Not well done, a, Sam. Not a nice creature in the book. Yeah. Right? So the bottom line is 150 years ago, people perceived whales as being evil animals because they killed people. Now, in reality, yeah. the reason why they killed people was people were trying to kill them. Yeah. But, but nine out of 10 people never saw a live whale in their life. They only heard stories that sailors would tell when they came back from their voyages. And some of their family members didn't make it back because they were killed by a whale. So people's perceptions of whales back 150 years ago was not good. So whales were hunted to the verge of extinction by the early 1900s and didn't even receive federal and international protection until the 70s. Now, by that time, whaling had completely changed. Whalers were going out in these big factory ships with these enormous harpoon guns. Whalers weren't being killed by whales anymore. So in the early late 60s, early 70s, whales got the perfect PR makeover. So biologists and conservation scientists gave whales a brand, rebranding. So we learned that whales were mammals. We learned that whales were, had eyelashes. They nursed their babies. They had a language. They were very social and they were highly intelligent. So literally in a very short period of time, whales went from being these demonic animals to being an animal that we should, that are close akin to, to us. And people's attitudes completely changed. So we did that for Great whales. PR firm. And it was actually right. we gotta do it for sharks. easier. It's harder for sharks. Why? Yeah, I can see that. 
because they look kind of scary. I mean, you see, it's like they've got again, their t- some of them, their teeth stick out and they're just pointing. Yeah. They look like you, a missile. You see that and- dorsal fin, and you're just freaking out. And people, I mean, people get attacked. Not very often, as everybody would like to think, but people get bit, shark okay. bitten. Okay, so-, so here's an interesting statistic: How many people have been killed by sharks in aquaria? None. Who did? I, I know it's not many, if, if any. I don't think it's... Yeah, one maybe? Zero? How many people have been killed by whales in Aquaria? Oh, tons. Should we address SeaWorld? <laughs> that's so, actually... Wow, that's a really good point. Thank you, Dr. Lowe. So keep in mind, <laughs> you know, there, there, and there, there are probably a, a thousand times or maybe 10,000 more sharks per orca kept in public aquaria around the world. And yet right. nobody's been killed. So that's such a good point. We have to be careful here, right? We attribute these, you know, personas to these animals and they're really not based on fact. Now there's probably good reasons why orca have done that in captivity, right? But but keep in mind we're giving sharks the they're the bad ones. Um, and, and we're not being fair in, in many of that assignments. Now, with that said, I don't know of anybody that's been killed by an orca in the wild, right? Also so, very true. So and, and it's not saying it hasn't happened. I just don't, I've never heard of it. So the, the bottom line is here are two animals that historically have been demonized, vilified, and, and, and. And we recognize their importance. We, rec- we learned more about them. We know more about them now. And, and it's easy to see how we can change people's attitudes about them. But we have to change how our, how, how our branding is for these species. And it's harder to do for sharks because, you know, much of the programming about sharks on television plays off the fear factor. They, they yeah. say they're educating. Shark Week. And they are, but they still, you can yeah, hear the Jaws theme in the background. Most frustrating thing for me oh, in doing like Discovery Channel Shark Week. I'm sure. Is to be asked to talk about the dire straits that sharks are in and, and how important they are to the ecosystem. And while I'm doing this and talking about how important sharks are, they're playing <laughs> the Jaws theme as the oh, soundtrack. No. That's a contradiction, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. That would drive me nuts. I don't blame yeah. you. Yeah. I would just walk off. I don't control this. I yeah. don't get to see that until it airs, unfortunately. So yeah. I have no say. Yeah. Sue their asses. Yeah. Oh, God. That's so terrible. Cause yeah, they're like, oh, explain to us why we should care about, you know, not throwing our trash in the ocean and conservation. And then, oh, actually, I'm going to play the Jaws theme song. Ha ha. Yes. <laughs> so, question speaking of Shark Week. So I'm sure you probably heard of the show Air Jaws, um, where you know great whites are. Jump- Have you seen great whites breaching before? Oh yeah. When you're out in the field, that oh yeah, is so cool. It is so cool, and for the little ones, we don't know why they do it. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. The big ones that you see on TV <laughs> are jumping because they're chasing jumping prey. Right, um, the seals or whatever. But little young white sharks jump along the coast all the time. Really? So it's not just feeding. It's not Maybe. just feeding. It's a behavior. It's, but what's um, really cool is when you see them jump, um, it's how you know it's not a dolphin or something like that. So basically, you know, when, when sharks are chasing prey, 
quite often they'll they'll leap out of the water following the prey. So the head goes for it almost like a dolphin jumping, right? But when we see these sharks that are jumping for not food reasons, we see them go up in the air and they'll land on their side or they'll land on their back. Really? We don't see any food and that doesn't flying upset around them. So, well, are they jumping for joy? It's fun. I, it could I'm just be. Fun. It, it yeah. very well could be that they're yeah. jumping for fun. Something to we do. The other yeah. thing is they do That's have so little copepods, little crustaceans on their skin, little ectoparasites that have little uh, claws. Oh, okay. And they're moving. They move. Oh. And it could be that they have the itchies, right? So we, we do right. see them rub on the sand, on the seafloor, trying to rub those off. But another way of dislodging oh, those or remora is you jump in the air and you smack them. Right. Who right. Knows? Wow. Makes sense. That makes that's yeah. so cool. And like I don't know, you could correct me if I'm wrong. The I mean, the few times I've been lucky enough to see dolphins in the wild, it seems like you can kind of tell because the mammal movement is a little bit more organic and round. And then I've in Hawaii actually we saw some fishermen were coming in for the day, and then you know they're like kids get out of the water because you know all the sharks are coming in following the fishermen. And we saw the, this lady. This lady was like, "Get out of the water! I don't know why you're in the water." And then we turned and looked, and we just saw this dorsal fin, and it was moving very straight. It was not as round. And, organ- and that's the way how I was able to tell the difference because, you know, you see a dorsal fin, it's like, oh, crap. But it's like, again, the more organic and then just the straight across. And I, I'm sure you would be able to tell better, but that's how I've been able to tell the difference in the past. <laughs> and so, yes. So the bottom line is that's how we even teach lifeguards and, oh, really? and okay. surfers how to identify, you know, because imagine you're out in the surfboard, you're laying there right. waiting for a wave, your eye level at the water. Right. And you see a fin pop up. Just pop up for a second. Right. Um, That usually gets people's hearts racing, right? Because they don't know what they just saw. They saw a fin. Right. Which fin is that? Exactly. Who does that fin belong to? (laughs) And it's amazing. If you whispered in their ear, it's okay, it's a dolphin, they immediately, the heart rate drops. Um, Right. If you go, I think that was a shark. And it doesn't matter what species. Right. It stays up. So, um, you know, this is the typical dolphin thing. You'll see the back come up and you'll see it go down. Right. Sharks, that thing comes up and it stays up it, and then right, it slowly sinks right. down. So that's, right. if you're eye level with the water, that's how you tell. Okay. Okay, cool. Because I, I was always telling people that because people ask like, oh, I think that's a shark. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it's a dolphin. Like, how do you tell? I'm like, just look at how it's a, it's a more organic movement. Um, and whatnot. And then, so I know for, do all sharks migrate or, um, I know great whites, they migrate, correct? And so have you followed the great white migration? And, um, it seems that fall, like we're from the Bay area originally, fall seems to be the time when they're up in the Bay, like October since like for surfing, I'm like, I usually try to avoid the water between like October and December just cause I'm like, Oh, there's usually a lot more great whites than normal up there. And that just seems to be their time of year. What causes them to move? Are they following like humpback whales going up to Alaska to feed their young? Or is it, um, cause I've noticed they're, you know, in Hawaii, they show up in the spring again, cause the bait they're humpback whales are calving and whatnot. And then the fall, they seem to be going back up north all of a sudden. And is that, are they following that migration pattern or? So what we've learned so far is that the young white sharks have their own migration pattern that is different from that of the adults. So, and and that's what we've learned so far. So the young ones act like the baby white sharks that we've been studying do migrate, usually in the winter. They leave Southern California because when our water temperatures dip 
consistently below 60 degrees, that seems to be a cue for them to migrate south. And, and at that small size, they're more temperature sensitive. Once they're probably oh, okay. two or three years old and they're a couple hundred pounds, they have the ability to retain heat that they generate from swimming. So white sharks are warm bodied. So they can keep their body warmer oh, okay. than the water they swim through, which huge advantage. Right. Muscles twitch faster. Right. Your brain works better. Your eyes work right. better. And that gives them a big advantage in catching a prey that's also warm bodied, like seals, right? The babies have right. all the same equipment right. as the adults, but their bodies are so small that they're not good at keeping the heat. It's like a child, right? So a child has a really large surface to volume ratio, which means they're going to lose heat really quickly. Right. But you get a big, robust guy right. and he can right. you know, hold his heat better because his surface to volume ratio is smaller and he can hold the heat better. So the adults right. migrate for different reasons than the babies. <laughs> The babies are migrating probably because it's too cold okay. and they're looking for warm water. The sure. adults can tolerate that sure. cold water. They leave, I think, because their food leaves. So they're in close to shore for two right. reasons, to give birth to their babies in the spring. And then the other reason is to feed on seals, which come back from their ocean migrations starting in the summer through the winter. Once the elephant seals leave, which, by the way, right. is the favorite of all the seals for a white shark. Once they leave, oh, that's when we see the white sharks migrate out to the middle of the Pacific. Oh, okay. Okay. Hey, Bunny. Yeah. I, I, I got to bail. And Dr. Lowe, I want to thank you very much for your insight and knowledge. And uh, I just need to go lay down. That's my problem. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you. You're, you've been great. I hope you come back and I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Okay. Yeah, thank um, you. It's been great. Uh, I hope you feel better, guy. Yes. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, Ray has yeah, a couple more questions for you, Dr. Lowe. Okay. Bye-bye. I've got All some right. easy questions. Yes. Go so, ahead, Sam. Sorry. You no, know, that's any, okay. I like to, I love to listen to you talk. It's amazing. Um, uh, yeah, it's so great. I've got some like elementary fifth grade questions for you. <laughs> it's just <laughs> stuff that I, I want to know. So, and I don't know if it's all the species that do it, but I've seen them do it on, on TV and documentaries and stuff. But so what is it physiologically that makes sharks go into a trance when they're flipped upside down? Why, what's that about? Oh, yeah. That's a great question, Sam. Uh, great question. I don't think anybody really knows why that oh. evolved. So we know how it works. We know yeah. how it works. So if you flip a shark upside down, you immediately start to see, and you have to flip them upside down and, and retain them in that position. Right. Okay. So, so they can instant, do roles right? and they don't just like... Right. You have to flip them upside down and hold them. Shark like epilepsy. And, and yeah. you've got to restrain them for 20 to 30 seconds, depending on the species. And then they will okay. go into what we call tonic immobility. So what's happening is that we see a, a, a suppression in vagus nerve activity at that point. So everything oh, is slowing down. Okay. Heart rate is slowing down. Um, blood pressure is reducing. All of those things are settling down. And what's what's been learned that is really cool is that different species have different time periods at which they're down. And what happens is if you hold them like that, huh. you'll find literally within, within a second or two, it'll start to struggle. So it might be three minutes for this species. And then at right at three minutes, it'll start to struggle. Mm -hmm. And if you flip it back over and then flip it back, it will reset. And literally at three minutes and two seconds, the shark will start to struggle again. So different species have different time periods 
that there will be within like the yeah. threshold. So we we don't really know. <sighs> what a why. weird thing to find out about, right? And and, and evolutionarily, yeah, it's just why cool. did it's, Yeah. So the yeah. best theory that I've heard Who is knows? that it may be related to mating, right? So sharks, compared okay. to all the other fishes, all exhibit internal fertilization, which means they copulate, right? And it, it is a very slow process in sharks because, you know, basically the male has to insert a clasper and they're using these things called siphon sacs to use seawater to pump this gooey sperm packet into the female. And it can take 15, 20, 30 minutes to do that. So imagine a male has to wow. bite okay. a female on her petrofin, get her in a position so he can insert the clasper. And if he or she is inverted, then, if, particularly if the female's inverted, then it allows adequate time for copulation, successful copulation. That makes that makes oh, a lot that of makes sense. A lot of sense. That's the best. I mean, that's I've okay. Heard. I mean, I'll no. buy it. You've got. Yeah, okay. you've got buy, buy, we'll, we'll buy it. We'll buy it. Absolutely. Was that easy. <laughs> yep. Sold. That's what I'm telling people from now on. Right. Gold. That's such a great question, Sam. Thank you for bringing that up. Because you always see that. Now, yeah. does that bother you uh, when you see those videos? Because it's always like, oh, the shark. What is it? The, um, the shark hypnotizer. And, you know, he goes and you see him in the Caribbean. He's always just flipping him over and then yep. petting him and stuff. Does that kind of bother you sometimes? It, it, it's not harming the animals that we know of. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, okay. It, it could make an animal at greater risk of being eaten by another shark. Um, because sure. you're, you know, this isn't, you know, sharks don't all, from what we've learned, sharks don't all come together to mate in one big group. Usually it's more oh, discreet, okay. you know, that sort of thing. So it could be when you're doing that, you know, another shark could be going, well, that shark's kind of out of it. Maybe I'll take a bite. Um, we just don't know. Ah. We, they don't see it very often. Um, and of course, seeing tonic immobility naturally in the wild is very rare. So right. I don't think it's harming the animals where we have to be careful and I was okay. one of my students of this when we're doing procedures on these sharks and we use tonic immobility as a form of sedation. You always have to remember that sure. the reason why the animals might want to come out of that is because many of them require um, what we call obligate ram ventilating. They have to swim in order to breathe and they might simply not be getting oh, right. enough oxygen right, right, right. across their gills. So that reset sure. button could sure. be, okay, I have, to, I have to move now to get some water across my gills. So just resetting them over and sure. over again could make them go into oxygen debt and, and basically suffocate them. So, right. so those are things that we're always really right. careful about when we, when we do this because we don't want sure. them in that position. Sure. That wiggling at that time period has evolved for a reason too. <laughs> and, and we don't want to put the animal at some disadvantage for that reason. Sure. Of course. That's very cool. And then, um, so have, did you study tiger sharks when you were in Hawaii as well? Sure did. And what, yeah, let's hear about your tiger shark. So yeah, let's tell us. I know it's always like great whites, bull sharks and tiger sharks are seem to be the most yeah. popular for shark week, but we love Makos. We actually did a Mako episode. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a Mako or worked with Makos? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love Makos. They're a little, they're, they're a little, so cool. They're a little twitchy as sharks go. <laughs> they oh, are really? they're twitchy. Yeah, they're they, I mean, constantly they're, moving and they're like always hyper. Yeah. Oh, so they're like the hyperactive shark. Like, so okay, really oh, what's, go, what's yeah. going on? Exactly. That's so cool. Yeah. 
And then like, I love nurse sharks too. They, I mean, to me, they're super cute because they're just like, you know, the you ultimate couch potato. Now. Yeah. Oh, is that uh-huh. so? They, okay. So they're the couch potato. Yeah. Actually, can you yeah. give, give the shark superlatives actually? Uh, so, um, well, nurse sharks are not just the couch potato. They're the ultimate couch, right? So they're so big <laughs> that you could literally rest on them and they wouldn't care. Yeah, they're cute. Um, horn sharks, they're true so couch cute. potatoes. I love horn sharks. They're, they're also really cute, cute little faces, you know, and, and just, you know, the ultimate chill shark just lay on the bottom. And then at night, they're out scooting around looking for urchins to eat and crabs and things like that. So um, Mako's very twitchy, kind of ADD, kind of what's going on, you know. Right. Um, tiger sharks, kind of big lumbering goofs, you know, like to do, to do. Okay. Um, I like eating See, turtles, goofy, I but I also them. like eating lots of puffer fish. You know, I'll eat anything that will fit oh. in my mouth. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's but 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 by far my favorite are cookie cutter yeah. sharks. They are just, Oh, are those the one that like basically create like that perfect circle when yeah, they Yeah, they they're misnamed. They should have been called the melon baller shark or something like that. You know, they just take this perfect ice cream <laughs> scoop out of things. And they're only, you know, they only get to be about Neat. 18 inches max. That's so um, cool. where do you find bites. them? Uh so usually in the open ocean. So um, there's okay. a lot of them around Hawaii. Um, okay. They are off further offshore, off California. We do find animals with fresh cookie cutter bites in them. They're more right. kind of warm, temperate, subtropical in those okay. waters, and are typically deep water. They're following the deep scattering layer, so they're moving, you know, between maybe a thousand feet and maybe three hundred feet in the water column. And in places like Hawaii, they come all the way to the surface. Um, they're, right. they're definitely a nocturnally active species from what we've seen. But what's cool is right. they take bites out of everything. I mean, everything. Yeah. Whales, they yeah. take bites out of white shark faces. I mean, for a shark this big. <laughs> they're super just, cute like, in such an awkward they way. They are super cute. It's a very awkward Yeah, they are. Way, so they're kind of, God, yeah, they're they're kind cute. of goofy. Yeah, they're, they're goofy looking, but they are cute. The little so underbite. will your wife ever get on you and be like, I was working on a, you know, a specimen today and it had some cookie cutter marks on it. <laughs> yeah, so, so those definitely do leave a mark. What's the part that I love explaining to kids is imagine you have this perception of sharks. Oh, you know, sharks are going to take this big bite, like a white shark and, and all that. But these sharks don't kill their prey. No, they don't. They don't kill their prey. Just taste the neck. Just a little nibble. Right? A little yeah. nibble here and there. What's the harm? So I just want right. this one piece right here and I'm good. You you have to appreciate that. And then I always that challenge is, yeah. my 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 undergraduates with okay so is a cookie cutter shark a predator or a parasite well that's what i was going to say too i was like it's kind of like a parasite yeah interesting that's it that is cool so, God, they are cool they, yeah 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 that's a good one cookie cutter sharks. That's a really good, good one good one yeah my fave. Like that's okay my, i have a question favorite. i have a question before it's we're, we're probably we're getting to an hour long so i'll just be real quick uh, so this is my other fifth grade question. So I know that you and your students do a lot of telemetry. What is the oldest shark that you guys have been seeing or been following with all of that? Like, what's the oldest oh, shark yeah. you've seen? Or been so, following, um, perhaps. Okay, so the oldest in age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, 
So um, we've been doing a project up in Alaska on Pacific sleeper sharks. And sleeper sharks, the sleeper shark group includes Greenland sharks. Greenland sharks are the ones that have been aged over 307 years old. So if Pacific Yeah, Sam, they're nuts. The oldest living vertebrate we know. Yeah. So there are sleeper sharks, either Greenland or Pacific sleepers, that are swimming around U.S. waters that have been born before the U.S. was a country. How about that? Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. And That's like the coolest others, fact I just learned today. But like other sleeper sharks, I mean, for the Pacific, I know the Greenland one, there's that parasite that eats its mm-hmm. eyeballs. Is it the same for the Pacific one too? Does it? Yeah. So why and, are they just being born without eyes at this point? Um, they're also the slowest shark that we know of. So they oh, okay. have the slowest heart rate and the slowest tailbeat frequency right. of any species okay. we've ever studied. So that gives time for something to just kind of latch on and hang around and... Yeah. So, okay. so the the old theory is cold and dark equals old. So if right. you live in a very cold, dark environment, everything slows down. So um, it's possible that they have very low metabolisms. They move very slowly, and that may be the key to old age, right? Um, because they're like even living in a state of torpor. Um, just above that, right? So you're just alive, above it. I mean, yeah. just like but, yeah. So, but not but. quite. <laughs> That's crazy. So, it is crazy. Yeah. And, and to think that, you know, I've held in my hands, you know, this is not a small shark. This is probably a 13, 14 foot shark that could be over 400 years old is just mind blowing, right? And that shark, the things that yeah, that shark is mind blowing. Or, well, exactly. not seen because it's in the dark. But. Yeah. yeah, you definitely just blew my mind with all of that. That is so cool. So then do you guys go out and tag? Okay, we have two more and then we'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lowe. Um, do you guys go out and tag regularly? Um, well, in Alaska, we do that in the summer. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, white sharks we do year round if they're around. Okay. But usually summers are peak. Okay. Okay. And then ideal water conditions. Like I've heard, you know, you always hear like when it's murky, you don't want to go in the water. Is that true? Uh, you have to be more careful, right? So so we have lots of white sharks around our coastline now throughout sure. the year, but prim- primarily right. in the summer. And we don't know why sharks occasionally bite people. We suspect that many of those are accidents. Right. Um, you know, if it's murky and, and a white shark is a very much a visual predator, they have very large, well-developed eyes that are warm right. so they can see very well. But it's just like driving down the road. If it's really foggy, you could be an excellent driver. But if you can't see right. and you're on a road that you don't know, you know, yeah. accidents happen, right? So right. we always tell people, look, the, the thing you have to be aware of is don't, don't, make your, don't increase your chances of being a shark accident. So stay together, ah. stay in a group, safety in numbers, right? right. Try to avoid right. places that are really murky. Um, obviously try to avoid places where there are dead things floating around like dead seals or marine mammals. Yeah. Because it's easy to become an accident, right? So sharks make mistakes. They just make them way less frequently than humans. Right. Right. Got it. Thank well, thank you so much, Dr. Lowe. We hope to have you on again and we hope to come visit you at the shark lab and see your, meet your team and meet you in person. Uh, 
Oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, we'll just show up and be like, um, we're guests of Dr. Lowe. Anytime. He should have, we should be on the list. Anytime. <laughs> uh, check the list. Thank you again so much for your time. Yes, this um, was again, wonderful. One of the we best shows have we've you- ever done. Yes, Love we it. hope to have you on again. Um, anything else you'd like to add? Oh, yeah. So also your Shark Lab is your Instagram is for they're following us on it, following us on Instagram. So thank you for that. Yep. Um, and yeah, so we'll definitely be posting about this on social media. And anything else you'd like to say, Dr. Lowe? Um, thank you and keep up the good work, right? Because oh. the better we educate the public about animals, the more they know right. about them, the less right. they fear them, the more right. they want to protect them and can right. be safe. Yes, exactly. And as always, you know, see, touch with your eyes. <laughs> Just animals rule number one, touch with your eyes. Thank you so much, Dr. Lowe. Yes, thank you very much. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Well, Otto, do you approve of this week's episode? <laughs>